Video, the movie podcast from Calgary, Alberta. I can't say with certainty I have ever seen a chuck wagon race live, even though that is something that has happened locally in my city for decades. I'm Nathan Rohr, formerly of Rogers Video Store 613, and I'm joined as always by Ryan McCullough. Uh, what I find fascinating is that you can't say for certain. Are you just? Are I've you definitely pretty... been to the rodeo segment of the Stampede, but I just remember like barrel racing. <laughs> so... Yeah, but like chucks are are completely separate. You have to buy, uh, like you have to buy a separate ticket for the chucks from the rodeo. Okay, so I've I've seen standard rodeo fare. Then I've never seen like the big Roman chariot races thing that gotcha. happens. Have you, you not? Know? Is this is this like an offhand thing, or have you not read the news this week? Oh no, I I read the news this week that okay. it won't happen this year. Like, man, so did it's you like just, like spontaneously bring this up. Yeah, like so Calgary <laughs> Stampede has like a long history of a rodeo and a chuck wagon race. There's not a lot of chuck wagons left in the world. In the world, like, it's a lot more rodeo yeah. based now. And yeah. uh, they just cut the chucks this week. Like, yeah, yeah. And a lot of people are really, really, really upset about it. But there's also a lot of people that are pretty happy about it because there's a lot of dead horses that come out of chuck wagon races every year. Yeah, it's pretty so, controversial. Have you ever seen it? Really, is where I was. I was. No, I've actually I've never been to a rodeo or the chucks ever type of thing. Okay. Uh, maybe the grandstand show. Like I'm kind of on the fence. Like I think I went as a kid to the grandstand show. I've seen um, that, like the big fireworks and yeah. dancing and everything, yeah. But, like, growing up, we went to the Stampede once a year, but, like, as a kid, my parents didn't want to do the evening stuff, so we were just there from the morning. We just went on the family day, the Sunday where you get in for free, yeah. first thing in the morning. And get um, tuckered out on the rides and the carnival fair and, and everything, and it's like, and let's get out of here. Yeah. We'd always end <laughs> yeah. the day with the Sky Ride. That was our favorite. We'd go to the Sky Ride. Okay. Like the thing that takes you over. Anyways, it's kind of like a ski lift, yeah. Yes, across the park. Um... No, like it was the stampede, and then as an adult, I just do not like the stampede. I can I can comfortably say, I'm yeah. Not I, the one thing, like I'm not I'm not going to go this year because of the COVID and everything. Oh, I'm not sure, prepared. Yes. But the one thing I'm going to do next stampede bucket list is just like chill out with some cheese and wine in that place because <laughs> that's like the oh, there's like an adult zone I never thought about when I was a kid, oh, and man. I can just hang out near but, like bad cowboy art and drink wine. That's great. Oh, like that's and good version? cowboy art because there's so many know? adult zones. Like there's the cowboy's tent, which is like an adult zone, but it's like a no, party but like I mean, like a zone. chill, lame adult zone. Okay, at least, <laughs> as know? long as you recognize it's lame. Um, no, yeah. When I was younger, the one thing that was always pretty impressive to me that I I wish I could still do as an adult now is the Coca Cola stage would always bring in actually like really cool young like up and coming indie acts and like bands I know. Mm. But like mm-hmm. I'm like, oh man, I just have to go pay admission to go see this band. The the problem is they just plunked the Coca Cola stage in the middle of the like the park, and so you have just people just like walking by, making comments, talking loudly while this band that you're trying to enjoy is playing. And <laughs> so it's like just terrible like, concert conditions. Yeah, it's not a great situation, and you still have, you still you pay. The other thing too is like I love the food. But I don't want to pay like twenty five dollars, twenty seven dollars. Insane prices for like deep fried whatever. Like, but, yeah. But you first have to pay twenty seven dollars to get into the park to then go pay insane prices to go get this. Like, I want mini donuts all the time, and I love old fashioned mini donuts. That's very specific. One place that sells mini donuts at the uh, fairgrounds. Yeah, but I'm not going to spend forty five dollars to get mini donuts for the privilege of. <laughs> but then you get to keep that pail. You do but, get to keep yeah. that pail. Anyways, yes, uh, I'm Ryan, also from Calgary, grew up with the Stampede, but because I grew up with it, I think I'm a little over it, but I get it. Hey, it's good tourism, so if you're not from Calgary, 
here's my ring of endorsement. Go see the Stampede and understand what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but more importantly, I'm here and I'm excited to be watching movies and talking about movies with my friend Nathan. That's right. Uh, that's the real focus of this show. We really fell into <laughs> West. And if it was Western themed this week or something, like Young Guns 2 or something, that yeah. would make sense. But no. That's uh, a, not even close <laughs> to being a superior sequel. But yes, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in this batch, we're looking at superior sequels, uh, movies that were made in the shadow of other movies, but they emerged as exemplary compared to the vast majority of cash-ins and follow-ups the industry <laughs> usually turns out in the wake of a hit. Uh, this week's candidate is Scream 2, uh, which is the follow-up to their 96 hit, uh, released just under a year earlier, so it could be considered maybe a quick cash-in, but I think they did some good work here, so we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at it. Uh, it's directed by Wes Craven, uh, it came out December 12th, 1997, so, uh, Titanic had to get out of the way, uh, they were really proud bringing that up in all the wikis I was reading, uh, it cost $24 million, and it made... Pretty much exactly the same amount of money as uh, Scream 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made $172.4 million. 101.4 of that was to, uh, U.S. domestic, and then the rest was international. Uh, it's 71. like, it's just slightly under, right? Like a million dollars or something, yeah. yeah. Like, that's like, kind of like getting at this movie this week type of thing. We're going to find a huge trend that, like, it's kind of like exactly that. When people talk about Scream 1 and then they talk about Scream 2, it's like, just that it's like it's just like a fraction of a point below like everybody right. has to put scream one first obviously but then scream two is just a fraction of a point below it's like right in the same zeitgeisty moment they managed to kind of ride a wave for like a year it seems yeah. kind of but yeah um i'm gonna run us through the summary uh it's a bit wordy this time i was i was trying to figure this out but uh here we go it's 1997 people are starting to buy and use cell phones vcrs are commonplace Diane Sawyer is famous enough TV personality that you don't even need to explain who that is. And Hollywood is cashing in on a series of grisly murders that just took place with their new movie, Stab, starring Luke Wilson and Tori Spelling. This causes a wave of new interest in the real-life case that inspired the movie, and Sidney Prescott seems ready to handle it. She has caller ID on her phone, her instincts are sharper, no way some creep with a knife is going to mess up her life again. But familiar faces start showing up in the wake of a double homicide at the movie premiere that bears some eerie earmarks of the previous crime wave. Could there be a copycat killer on the Windsor College campus looking to recreate the events of the Woodsboro Massacre? Yes, that's that's (laughs) that's true. That is (laughs) is what happens. That is exactly what we have here. So here, fascinating thing. Less than a year later after Scream 1, in story two years later. Oh, okay. So. Good, I guess, just to like give a little breathing room for like Good, we guess, made a yeah. movie to like. It's literally within a year that they're like, "Oh, this massacre happened. Let's put out a screenplay and film it and release it within the year of it." Pretty tacky, Hollywood. <laughs> but yeah. But that being uh, said, we, those yeah. scenes, man, stab scenes are fantastic. Like that's Robert Rodriguez did yes. those for this. Yeah. Okay. So the opening of this movie is uh, our new opening couple, Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett. Yeah. Smith, um, going to see a movie, and she really wants to go see the new Sandra Bullock flick, which mm-hmm. I think is comparable to Hope Floats. Like I'm trying to figure out what was going I mean, on like. What time. would she be referring to in yeah. 1997? Probably nothing. Yeah. But it was like Hope Floats is kind of what I think she has in her head of like that's what I want okay. to go see. And Omar Epps is like, no, bro. Anyways, yeah. uh, they go see this movie. 
they're in it and they're watching Stab, which is, like Nathan said, the film, the in-film film based upon the first film of this series, just meta levels all over the place. Already, yeah. And it's so perfectly done because you have Heather Graham instead of Drew Barrymore in this opening scene. And the way that they're writing the dialogue is so like how they wrote the dialogue <laughs> in the first movie is so like classic. We can like we can requote it and stuff like that. But that Heather Graham's dialogue is so painfully bad. <laughs> I already dislike you. Like, like I've only I this love phone. the confidence to like write a bad version of something you've already aced or whatever, yeah, exactly. and just like have this like trashy version. Like you're you're kind of self depreciating, I guess, yeah. or like poking fun at your own thing. But yeah, but like it's, in a way that like fun. honors like because the the famous line is like uh, Drew Barrymore says, uh, "Oh, so what did she say? I'm not gonna be able to get it." But anyways. Heather Graham that like says like and I've already disliked you like she just so they use harsh language but it's PG-13 harsh language and it's just everything sensationalized like there's nudity in Stab even though there's no nudity in Scream Mm -hmm. it's sort of implied nudity in Stab too though because there's no nudity in Scream 2 exactly so it's like the theater of crazy people that are at this Stab (laughs) premiere are seeing nudity but you aren't when you're watching Scream 2 this stab premiere is terrifying. I would never want to go. Like, aside from like, the fact that there's a really, like, a real murderer there murdering really real people. Yeah. I don't want to go see this movie at, in the stab theater. No, it's like a Rocky Horror picture show or something. Like, people have plastic knives and masks and they're well, running yeah, like, around freaking out. Well, yeah, like, for a gift from the out. studio. From a gift yeah. from the studio, they're giving everyone ghost face costumes, which is just, now, in retrospect, a terrible idea. But yeah. here we are, because eventually two people are dead by a person in Ghostface. But then they're giving out fake knives. They're all glow-in-the-dark, and they all just, like, are loving every moment. Like, to, obviously, this is, like, a perfect movie, like, a movie theater, like, a in-movie movie theater crowd. Like, it has to be crazier than the real movie theater you're sitting in. Yeah, like, in a, a real movie. movie theater, it's, like, <laughs> hushed silence and people whispering. If somebody talks too loud, everyone, like, glances over and gives them the evil eye. Especially, mm-hmm. like... I'm even thinking of, like, my wildest, like, opening nights where, like, one of the peak ones for me was episode three, Revenge of the Sith. Where, yeah. like, that was There's back in the day. There's lightsabers around and stuff, well, right? like, yeah, toy lightsabers. I was lining up for hours beforehand because there's no reserved seating. I had mm-hmm. to, like, uh, anyways, midnight showing. So I was there, like, five lining up for midnight. And the theater, the in-theater staff, I don't remember, I don't remember if that trailer, when they first, uh, teaser trailer for episode three, and like quiet and you hear the breathing of Darth Vader and you hear Palpatine say, Darth Vader, yes, rise master, or whatever. Rise. And then it's like a cut super cut. They yeah. played that portion of the trailer, and then these two dudes that worked at famous players in Coliseum like yeah. did their own like lightsaber, like pitch black, duel. they hit their lightsabers on, and then they did their full like a full lightsaber duel, like they're trying to do duel of the fate stuff. It yeah. was but it was like everyone loved it. Like corny sure. but festive and yeah. fun. Yeah, okay. So, anyways, mm-hmm. this crowd was crazy. This crowd is crazy. Like it terrifies me. Like I would be out of that room in a play- heartbeat. I'd be like, let's go see the Sandra Bullock film. I'll come back right. on a Saturday this afternoon. This crowd is too rowdy. They're ruining this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> come back on a Monday afternoon to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, but yeah, this, so we get this kind of cold open, I guess, with like this couple going and it's so weird though because like even though it's the rowdiest theater ever jada still gets like a dirty look for like 
Star 69 is ass. What are you doing? And it's like, whoa, hey, don't belittle the movie, okay? Like, But people are like running around and like jumping up in the middle of the, every scene during this. So it's like well, somehow she's still getting... It's like another level of like where Kevin Williamson gets to like comment on his own first script. Because mm-hmm. like how many times do we watch a horror movie and we're like, don't go in there, don't go up there, don't go do this. And then yeah. he has someone comment on like why how wouldn't they goes. just why wouldn't they just hang up and call Star Sixty Nine when they watch right. the first screen film? Like his own plot hole from his first movie, just yeah. kind of call it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. By putting a character in it who calls it out, but then everyone hates that person. Right. I like it's a minor thing, but I still wanted to like question it and then it as the movie went on i felt they kind of clarified their case or whatever like was the black guy dies first like already kind of a cliche in the oh, genre yes. that williamson would have been like very aware of it 100 because like because even later in this movie there's another yeah. black character who plays the cameraman to gail weathers um, yeah gail weathers um, yeah i have a quote from him that kind of clarifies that but yeah yeah, yeah. So where he says like uh dudes like me never survive like these situations like br- yeah brothers never survive situations like this or whatever yeah yeah that's yeah 100 percent. this was already a trope in hollywood like right he, we've had decades now of like the token black guy or token black girl dying in, in horror films type of thing and yeah. the final girl never being black type of thing right or, of not white type of thing so, so just that it opened with like Omar getting stabbed in the ear and everything. I was kind of like, all right, like, is this just an example of this happening? Or is this like aware that this is happening? And it's just kind of having fun with the notion. Well, the possibility and then, yeah. is that the previous film had zero black characters in it. At all. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was just like, maybe it was just his own commentary putting black people in it at all. And then having them die, but then also having like them themselves right. point out this thing in their own film. Right. And so yeah, like, like there, there's dialogue from Jada about just like seeing a bunch of dumb white people get stabbed. Like yeah. that's this movie. And it's like, yeah, okay. Like, yes, it is. Yes, <laughs> and is here we are again. Because like, because uh, her, her big point is that if a black person would just run or something like that, right? Like, does she make a comment about like what a black person would do or they get out of the mm-hmm. situation? And that's mm-hmm. exactly what the person, because they're not in peril. Like Jada Pinkett and Omar Epps are not in peril. Like there's no, like they're not, they're college students, Windsor college students, but they're not later in the movie being caught up in this plot no because that's the comment that she's making like if i was in this situation the situation that's about to happen she would have like pieced out of that school like the black camera guy dude right yeah but But instead she's in this other crazy situation well the the kickoff like victims so they don't know that this is happening so it's really like they would make better choices but they don't know this is happening in their world because it's like a perfect situation to have two people murdered in yeah yeah this also made me think like I really wish I could see this specific movie in a theater because it has this meta theater intro, which yes. I have never had the opportunity to see this that way. So it's just kind of like, oh, you know, like that kind of you sit down to see a movie and then the characters are sitting down to see a movie as like the introduction to the movie for sure. It's just kind of a I fun way to jump see this off in theaters. Was it an awesome surreal layer? Well, or? it was awesome because I was 12 years old at the time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My uh my mom was no no wait 97 i was turning 12 i hadn't right quite, your was birthday 11. was in like two weeks yeah type <laughs> yeah of thing. uh i was turning 12 and went and saw this with my mom like she was like i was like because we watched scream one as a family rented it and then this came out and i was so jazzed and my mom loved the scream movie like she doesn't like slasher horror films but she really likes scream okay and so she took me and we went and saw it in theater so like i don't remember the experience other than like 
one of the big reasons why I love this movie is just that impression, right? Of like, mm-hmm. I get to go see Scream in a movie theater. Like, right, right. With all the people that I, sh- I shouldn't be seeing this. Like, I'm not even 13 yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So this, this the cold open happens. Uh, Scream 2. Uh, mm-hmm. title screen and then we're with sydney the kind of right after getting like prank calls and stuff because this movie's out and we're kind of in the plot i guess of oh those are college students from the same school so that's why that was connected at all and now we're here we are scream two <laughs> i don't yes. really know how to like crest into just yeah we're we're in it again is this a different town ta- like we're no longer in woodsboro no. we're in ohio somewhere or something i don't i couldn't tell you i don't know where woods where is Woodsboro? it's a real place okay uh, i just reading through kind of like where it was shot and where it's set and stuff i think windsor college is supposed to be somewhere in ohio and that's okay. where the majority of the action takes place on this college campus yeah it, it's clear that like she moved away because the comment that kind of happens is that why did randy like randy followed her to a, another school right yeah. like his big character arc is he loves sydney prescott mm-hmm. and like, do we even like when when Dewey and him are going through all the suspects? Randy should be like number one, like as like stalkery weirdness. A well, bit. he he survives, so he has post trauma. He yeah. could have a mental snap, and he followed Sid from their small town to a small university, states over type of thing. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, they both it makes sense because they both went into theater. Like he went into like film, and he she went into. It's like a theater art school type of thing. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, like yeah. so, it's it's kicks off, and Sydney has very much lived a hard life. She clearly, in those two years, had to deal with a lot. Gail Weathers wrote a book called "The Wardsboro Murders" that uh, goes into detail around Sydney's mom and like the connections and the blah blah blah. So that becomes all on Earth, and all of the stuff is starting again. Like they hear about the two murders. There's she just has the sense that things are happening all over again, and it mm-hmm. just like predicates her story and something that i really love about the scream films is they they make the final girl and they care about like so oftentimes other horror films when there's multiple like the final girl returns we don't get as much about like what would this be like like halloween 2 is like the night the same night that halloween 1 is so we don't right, really get like laurie strode we don't get laurie strode like what has this done to her like two years later or something like that we don't really mm-hmm. get that until H2O where we then find out that Laurie Strode has been messed up for 20 years. Right. Um, so it's just nice to see, like, this movie cares about Sidney Prescott and, like, really wants to show you, like, this has changed her in a really bad way. Yeah. I mean, f- for this, I just watched Scream 2 again. I did not revisit the first one immediately before. Did you go to the first one or you just remember it? Vividly no, enough? well, I, I, watched, um, I watched all four, like, six months ago. So okay. I didn't feel like I needed to watch the first one again, but yeah, yeah, like it's yeah, it it leans a lot on kind of remembering some details from that, like with Cotton and mm-hmm. like uh, what happened to her mom and everything, and like there there's little details that I was kind of like fishing in my memory for a little bit, but most of it's pretty straightforward and easy to follow. Uh, the Diane Sawyer thing, honestly, I don't remember who that is. You don't <laughs> like, remember who Diane Sawyer is? Not really. I get that she was like probably a you know access hollywood or et or somebody no no no. she was a proper newswoman who like like she was uh barbara walters (laughs) like she was the equivalent to barbara walters okay i can't put like a face to that okay yeah yeah. she was huge like 90s and early 2000s 
She was massive. Like she would inter- get all the big interviews type of thing. Okay. I uh, just his like Cotton's big uh, motivation is to just kind of get some fame, I guess, and clear his name. Yeah, he went maybe? to jail. Like Cotton went to jail for the death of Sydney's mom. Yeah, this is Lee Schreiber's character. Testimony yeah. Because she saw Billy leave with Cotton's jacket and thought mm-hmm. that it was Cotton. And then Cotton went to jail. And so Cotton is just like his motivation in this film is just like I like my life is ruined. Like I've yeah, been to jail. I need to be like vindicated. Yeah. And he just was like he wants a payday to like he wants the the story to be heard type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so he can get a payday out of it. Have you do you remember the opening scene of Scream Three? Uh, it's him being attacked, right? Yeah, like, his uh, girlfriend. Like he's on the highway in L.A. and he gets a phone call and it finds out that the killer's in his girlfriend, his house with his girlfriend, and it's like okay. a back and forth. It's it's a really it's like the best scene of that movie type of thing. Yeah. Oh, Scream Three. I I have vaguely negative me- memories of Scream Three. Nobody has. I actually would love to meet the person who thinks Scream Three is a good movie. Like, is like one of the better ones of the series. Well, yeah, it wasn't written by Kevin Williamson, right? No, it's and Aaron, it kind of Aaron Kruger. But Aaron Kruger also did rewrites on this film. Okay, okay. So, yeah, it was Aaron yeah, Kruger. I, Go ahead. I, do we want to talk about like the creative gen? Like, apparently, there was kind of ideas for this movie already happening with Kevin's Williamson after the first movie came out. Like, he had a couple. Well, what dozen I read pages. is that he yeah. he was he, as he was writing the script for the first one. He yeah. was already coming up with that. He was writing down ideas for what you could do for a second one type of thing. Like copycat killer stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Type of thing. And then the thing that really weirded me out reading about the behind the scenes of this movie was like how worried they were about leaked screenplay stuff. Yeah. Like for 97, like I wouldn't, I don't, how widespread would like a true spoiler have gotten in do you remember, 1997 like, cool internet? News? Ain't it cool news? And what's the guy who, who found Harry it? Knowles yeah, and everything. Harry Knowles. He got scoops like crazy, and like he was getting uh, tons, uh, tons of scoops on things. Like people would actually like want to spoil the movies for themselves. I guess this is a oh, this is a huge part of like like this predict like this has only gotten worse in modern culture. Like okay, there's, there's people that are whole jobs is just like their whole full time job is to find out secrets from Marvel movies or Star Wars films and then to put them on the internet to get a scoop before right. Marvel or, or Star Wars can reveal it type of thing. But, like, do you think, like, the regular Joe on the street, like me, like, is, you know, like, I know, like, a Hateful Eight got leaked before it was made, right? But it's not even... But I'm not going to read it, so why, you know, like, it having happened doesn't necessarily spoil, like, the audience at large, does it? Like, it, it just it, kind of... It kind of does because then it becomes clickable, so therefore it shows up in people's news feeds, like before it's sudden, out. Like, yeah, so like so, even if you don't want to know about it, you you're looking at Google News and here it is. It's, it's like, like this person's the killer, and it's like oh okay, or like like spoilers revealed type of thing. It's it might not ruin it for everybody. It's gonna ruin it for somebody though. And right. They kind of just want that like pure out of nowhere shock, right? Like. Yeah. And there's like just a few the, times in my life where like that's genuinely happened and they've been important to me. Like Michael Scott, the run off the rough to the top of my head, Michael Scott coming back to the finale of The Office. Mm-hmm. Nobody, they, up until the day of, they were like lying through their teeth saying, no, like, guys, be prepared that Steve Carell's not going to be in tonight's episode at all. Okay. And everyone was like, oh, come on, he has to come back. And they're like, no, we, schedules, we couldn't get him, blah, blah, blah. And then boom, he shows up. Spoilers. Okay. But everyone's seen that show. Anyways, yeah. he shows up in the last episode, and it's like, that was more important because I didn't expect it. 
But if it had been ruined for me, I would have been like, oh, looking forward to it, and it would have been fine. But the but the magic wouldn't have been... The surprise yeah. is important. Like, the yeah. f- finale for Scream 1... Like, okay, you have a great story for Scream 1, like, when you first watched it. Like, I remember uh, you had not seen it when we became friends. Okay, yeah. I'll, you had well, a little my... book. You had a book that mm-hmm. you took notes in. Oh, I was, like, doing red herring stuff. Yeah, I was, like, trying to figure it out as I was watching it and having a fun time engaging with all the lies and mystery. (laughs) Who did I predict, though? I think I whiffed so hard. What was great about that movie is this is time where they make the the overweight sheriff uh, a red herring (laughs) because he's wearing the same boots that the killer is established as wearing. And so Nathan's big thing was, like, it's the sheriff. I know it's the sheriff. He's wearing the same boots. And I was like, I love that you latched onto that red herring where the rest that of us were one. like, that's not real. That can't be real. There's, there's no way it's that guy. <laughs> but no, dude, that sheriff, like, you, you would trust the sheriff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they only get to pull that kind of, like, trickery once, I guess. This movie is, like, playing around with, with that again. Yeah. I, I, this movie's actually, I think people often discredit this film because the uh, the killers are more predictable or they're either su- one of them's either super predictable or completely at a left field mm-hmm. like that's kind of like the conclusion of the two killers but i'm kind of like on board with it because it's a criticism of sequel fatigue like right who else can you get to become your secret killer so we make it like the very clearly obvious guy who's mur- who's videotaping murder scenes and wants to be and lo- loves serial killers yeah. And then a random out of left field, it's Debbie Salt. Like, which is almost Loomis. like I was really paying attention to her this this time watching it because she's almost like Scooby Doo introduced like early as just like part of this group of reporters that's following Gail around and like asking her questions and stuff. And she's like too present for too often. But you know you who know? that is, right? Like, you know who the actor is? Laurie Metcalf. Yeah. Yeah. From like, so. In this group of like no faces, all of, of a like, sudden yeah, we have Car- Lori Metcalf, who is uh, Aunt Donna, is her name. Anyway, mm-hmm. she's on Roseanne. Yeah, and like very popular on Roseanne. Here's like one actor you recognize in this group. You're like, yeah, oh, so she stands out. And then it's like, okay, well, it's not so much like, is that person going to matter? It's like, who is that? What is going on? With well, it's character, either she's right? there for cannon fodder, like to be dead. Like a new yeah. character, a new face to put on the screen to kill, or she mm-hmm. matters to the overall plot of the film, type right. of thing. Uh, but yeah. but her reveal comes out of complete left field. Like, sure, she's the killer, but what's her motive? Her motive is like, whoa, like that is yeah, okay. Like, that's like the reasoning behind it is the real like spice, I guess, at the end. But well, but it's like, I, but yeah. I think that's Kevin being intentional, saying like, this is silly. Like, this is actually like. Like, what I think I love about this movie is, like, Kevin – here's Kevin Williamson who is writing – what if you read it as a script, you'd be like, oh, this is a, a satire. Like, this is a giant comedy satire. But mm-hmm. then you get a guy like Wes Craven who has no sense of humor. He'll show up and make it into a very serious, like, horror film. And then you have this perfect marriage of, like, oh, like, we're – it could have been a big joke with only Kevin Williamson stuff – Wes Craven shows up and makes it like actually suspenseful and actually good things and actual good character development. But really at the end of the day, it's kind of a silly movie. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's credited as like comedy horror on IMDb. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And then you said you're like, your mom doesn't like slasher movies, but this one works. Cause it's like 
cut with all this comedy and like no, lighter it, for stuff. My mom, or... It was the first one. She loved the first one more than this one. Uh, the okay. first one was just because of the thrillerliness of it. Okay. Like it was just a solid, it's also just kind of like not a slasher film because it, they kind of ground it mm-hmm. and it becomes like more of a thriller in that situation. Like a whodunit mystery kind of thing. Scream. With... I mean, IMDb has it as horror mystery. Do they? Yeah. Maybe I'm, maybe it's Rotten Tomatoes, which I kind of want to bring up Rotten Tomatoes briefly because like for our superior sequels, like conversation, this one technically mathematically is slightly higher than the first movie. It's an 81% critic score to 79% for the first movie. But like the Metacritic or the something like that would be different, right? Yeah. The audience review scores and stuff are different. Like, yeah, uh, audience review, you can't. I don't trust audience review scores. They are a giant, like... Like downers. <laughs> like, it's just like, what are you guys smoking? Like, it's sometimes like 95% for a Zack Snyder film. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, Whereas this one, it's like 81% critic review and then like 57% approval for, like, so rotten or whatever yeah. for for the people. Uh, but yeah, I just thought it was neat that, like, outside of ourselves and our opinions, like, mathematically, this could be looked at as, like, a superior sequel just right there. But anyway, man, uh, that is crazy. It's actually, yeah. Cause it's, it's 79 and 79 and then 81 and 57. Yeah. Bigger divergence on yeah. that end. But, but like, I don't, I, I guess I never, I don't know. I've always personally, Nathan, like here's a bias of mine. I put yeah. more weight in critics than I do in people's reviews. Sure. They're more experienced viewers or something. Well, it's, I'm to be as a, is it this weird thing where, it's filled with people that like they are giving ones or tens. That's all. Mm-hmm. They're in mm-hmm. ones or tens, and I'm like, this is not a one or a ten. Not even close to being one or a ten. This is maybe a solid five or a seven. Like, and they're giving ones and tens left, and they're often giving ones or tens for the worst reasons. Like, if it's like uh, I'm to be's audience is like if they're if it's anything to do with female empowerment, it's immediately one. trashed. Like it yeah. is just the worst rated film. Like the most recent Terminator. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, sure. I've, I've seen that uh, happening. Like Captain Marvel and stuff like that. Like it mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, this has some of that, I guess. Like Sydney gets to be kind of tough. Like she has some cool lines of assertion mm-hmm. late in the movie that I appreciated. Uh, well, really just the like, you forgot one thing about Billy Loomis. I killed him. Yeah. Uh, I edited that for this show. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she no, says she, it with more severity. <laughs> she like she kind of like just doesn't become a victim. Like this is her transformation from being a victim to being like r- charging headfirst into things. Yeah, because she's still like uh, traumatized and like has the trust issues, which is like the big thing with Jerry O'Connell's character in this yeah, movie Derek. is yeah. like not being sure if he's on the level or not because that was the problem in the first movie, and yeah. like he is just actually just a g shucks no it's fine i'm a nice guy the whole movie like, guy <laughs> and it is devastating his like yeah. just death is like what did he do wrong he did nothing wrong other than sid didn't trust him or like joined a frat because <laughs> that yeah. put him in a situation where he was tied up but even whatever. then like he broke frat rules so he kind of sets himself separate from his frat yeah like, no he, he a broke bro. frat rules to declare his love and like this corny scene oh, that i totally <laughs> I I thought it was more elaborate in my memory. Like I thought like instruments came in or something and it was like a bigger thing than it is, but it's like no, he's just kind of hanging it out there looking like a goof, like singing with nobody. Like people start clapping to kind of encourage it, 
but uh, it's, so it's for like, context, he sings. He gets up in the middle of the cafeteria. Cafeteria, yeah. They're at, like in their relationship. They're at a point where she's having a tough time trusting him because they just had a run in with Ghostface, where Ghostface only cut his arm when they had it. When Ghostface clearly had a chance to just straight up murder him. Yeah. And Sydney, in her brain, is like, "Oh, this is like a ruse to make me not think that Derek is the killer." But really, mm-hmm. it's a double ruse for Ghostface to make Sydney think that when he really isn't the killer type of thing. Yeah. Anyway, it's like a frame up. Yeah. To prove his love, he gets up in the middle of the cafeteria and starts singing the song "I Think I Love You" loudly for everybody to hear. Yeah. And yeah. He, uh, I guess like for rehearsals for auditions for that role, that's exactly what they got them to do: is just to sing "I Think I Love like You." You have to sell this scene. <laughs> yeah. Type yeah. of thing. So I don't know. I I think that scene's great. Like this... I yeah, it was just in my mind's eye, like lo- like looking forward to watching this movie this week. When I was like remembering that scene, I was like, yeah, there's like a huge dance number or something. Like there's this big thing that happens, so weird. And it's yeah. like not really, no, not really. <laughs> like yeah. there's some people clapping, and it's it's a thing, but it's not it's not as elaborate. Like it was like the Clerks two scene or something in my head. Yes, of, like colors and people start dancing, and it's like no 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 no, that's not quite like it right. fully yeah. makes it a movie at that point type of thing. Yeah. I like not. embellished it in my brain. Yes. Uh, but um, anyway, we yeah. don't even touch my favorite thing about this movie ever. Okay. What, what is it? Oh, it's Dewey. Dewey, Dewey, Dewey. I have a note of him. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Dewey. Dewey Cox return. is by far my favorite thing about this movie. Like, um, he's got this crazy limp. He's got this crazy <laughs> limp that completely <laughs> he, disappears for the sequels. And yeah. he's got this gray mustache, just such a wispy, Thin, oh, I had mustache. to like stop and really look at. It. It's like it's like barely there. It's like squiggly and weird. It's, <laughs> Which, it's like, an odd mustache. Really, yeah. It really leans into like the first movie's like <clears throat> they're making Dewey like they're trying to make him and like he thinks he's the hero of the story, but he's clearly not the hero of the story. But yeah. he still walks around with that like I'm the main character quality, but really he's like a subsequent like, character. I'm I'm uh, a detective. I'm gonna figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so he is he his... anything in this movie? In Ebert's review, he says he's a security guard. I think he just showed up because he's concerned. Like, yes, he I literally is he... just there. He's one hundred percent just there to protect uh, Gale, Sid, and no, no, Sid, Sid and he's Gale. there to protect Sid because he's fighting with okay. Gale, right? Yeah, like, yeah, he's upset right. with Gale because he Gale, hates the book. Yeah. Gale tears him apart in this book. <laughs> Like, yeah, it just makes him seem like and a they rude. have like a yeah. romantic connection, and then she tears him apart in her own. Gale is cold. Like, she is mm-hmm. so cold. Like, they're legit item, like a couple, and then she yeah. completely roasts him in her book about in this situation. But it's just, I feel like Ebert felt he had to justify why the Dewey character is there, but, like, oh. I don't think the movie does. It's just, like, I heard there were murders here, so I, like, flew out, because, like, yeah. that's bad. That is, that, that is what <laughs> happened, but he's not, like, Roger, I love when Roger, like, slightly gets details off, because he, like, yeah, clearly yeah. seen so many movies that he's just, like... It's hard to keep track of all the little details. But little yeah, he dumb slightly details. gets details off. Um, yeah. He thought this movie, like, it is three and three. Like, he liked the first two films. Yeah. Uh, he also calls it out as being, like, more gory than the first movie. And Which my is. mind's... Is it? Okay. Oh, it's so much bloodier than the first movie. Okay. My, like, mind's eye, again, like, it just felt less intense to yeah. me. But like, bl- I don't... Do we get stabbed in the back in the first movie and then that's it? Okay. Whereas, like, in this movie, he gets, like so many times and spitting blood up on that well glass. on the window and everything yeah. in the in the film lab or whatever yeah. yeah this movie is a lot more violent there's a lot more deaths in it the deaths are more elaborate there's more blood 
Um, I just, I really vividly remember the like garage door death from the first movie as being gnarly. Yes. And then like the only one that registered, I was like gnarly. And the second one was the car accident, like spike thing with the agent guy. Uh, Like that was one where it was like, whoa, that's some like final destination stuff just happened to this dude. Like that guy's done. That guy's done. But Um, yeah, yeah, it's no, it's more like the, uh, the blood capsules coming out of the mouth and the blood in the scenes. There's okay. just a lot more like blood on a lot more blood in this movie than there is in the first one. Like, and there's way more death scenes. It just really seems like just like Kira syrup on a knife shots happen. Yes. But like those don't register as that crazy to me. <laughs> you oh, know? yeah. I don't know. I just again, like I kind of go back to like the final scenes. Like Dewey's death is really is really kind of violent and horrific. I remember being traumatized by Dewey's like stabbing scene. Like I was Dewey's, so sad. Dewey's stabbing scene. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say death scene because when I was a kid, I was certain anybody who watched that movie would be certain that Dewey Cox died. There is no reason he's not dead, <laughs> but it would be terrible. So but it would just... be terrible. And then they realize that. And I think they're just like, well, we can't really go and edit out a bunch of the stab wounds. So let's just keep it. And then just be like, he's alive. Yeah, we'll roll he's him fine. out of the stretcher. Uh, okay, but anyways, we'll get <laughs> like back to a Dewey. day later. His music cues. Yeah. Anybody familiar with 1996 Broken Arrow? Apparently, yeah. <laughs> is going to be very familiar with Dewey's like doom 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 doom. There's all these trivia notes about like yeah, this replaced like Dewey's theme, and yeah. like in my brain, that is Dewey's theme. No, I know this dumb it's guitar the, it's thing. It's the order in which you saw if you saw Broken Arrow before you saw Scream Two, whichever one came first. In your mind, I saw it Broken Arrow before I saw Scream Two, so I was like sitting there being like, that, what? What? I heard this before. <laughs> and then you go and look at it. Marco Beltrami didn't do the score for Broken Arrow. No, it's Hans Zimmer. Like, they just, like, borrowed some tracks as temp tracks, and then everyone loved it. So they just kept it. Yeah. It's so weird. Is there, does Hans get a thank you? Uh, There's two songs of his credited at the end. Yeah. Okay. So they they're just just like, we licensed this to have it because we needed it. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's great because, like, I was always worried, like, oh man, like, because it's funny because I guess, yeah, scores are broken up into tracks for albums and stuff like that. But we don't yeah. really think of like when somebody gets a soundtrack, they take it a score from another film, but that's essentially what they did here. They just took a score. Yeah. They just from took another tracks film. from another score and like, well, it really fits this <laughs> dumb thing we're doing here with Dewey. So. And it really does. Like, honestly, like his scenes, he, I don't know what it is. I, as a kid, maybe it's just because it's like, I've always been attracted to Ghostbuster type heroes where it's like, they're like not clearly the heroes. They're like they're in over their head, or well, something. they're just like they're not what you consider the classic heroes. Like they're not Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. Like, mm-hmm. like they're overweight scientists, like middle aged scientists. So right. Dewey showing up and being like completely in over his head, but like willing to run forward into the mess, run into it with his limp right after that guy in the film lab. Like yeah. just go for it. Yeah, that makes fun. me like, oh, that is what a real hero is in real life. Like a real mm-hmm. life hero, not an action star hero type of thing. Right. So no, Dewey's fantastic, but, but, and I, and I love his just self insertion into the story. Like, he's just like, I have to be involved. And he just shows up and he's there and yes. yeah, yeah. asking questions and yeah, digging around. Um, uh, lots of, lots of like middle nineties, late nineties, teen cameos in this film, like tons yeah. of them. Yeah. Cause we got like, I'll just, I'll just go on the list really quick. We got Sarah Michelle Geller on the cusp yeah of starring in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and she just came off of I Know What You Did Last Summer like earlier Mm -hmm. that year she was in Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you got Selma Blair. You got Portia de Rossi. You got yeah. uh, what's the other one? Um, Joshua Jackson's there. You got for for like a minute. It was so weird seeing him for like just this sequel discussion in this yeah. film class, and then he like does not become a character past that point, really. But you gotta remember, like Kevin Williamson, like had a hand in a bunch of these. Like he was, he's Dawson's Creek, Dawson's Kevin Creek Williamson. guy. Yeah. So he got like Josh Joshua Jackson. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller was on. I know what you did last summer, which is a Kevin Williamson film. So she Screenplay. came over type yeah. of thing like there are definitely uh connections there and he like yeah leaned into it like so this movie ends up having like a secret kind of a hot young cast jerry mm-hmm. o'connell like this is like one of the first times we've seen jerry o'connell since he was a kid an overweight kid in stand by me yeah and like the first time we really saw him as like a hunk but this like he kind of had a little bloom after this too he did like joe's apartment and and stuff like that mm-hmm and then we get young, crazy-haired Timothy Oliphant. First, like, time I ever came across Timothy Oliphant, and I was like, that guy's clearly the bad guy in every movie he's in. <laughs> yeah. But then he's he pivoted his career. That. Like, when he showed up in The Mandalorian in season two, I was so pumped to see him. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, he's made it work for himself. Uh, but, yeah, his hair was so crazy. Oh, um, his, but his hair is always, like, he <laughs> like he has magnificent hair. He's a, he's a gentleman that'll, like... He's at this age of his life and is like what mid mid late forties early fifties still has magnificent hair. He's got like Jake Gyllenhaal hair. Mm-hmm. So, good for uh, do, I don't know how much to talk about their sequel discussion in the movie. Like they, <laughs> oh, Jamie man. Kennedy and like everybody has this little talk about like Godfather and yeah. aliens and so it uh, is. It's the Empire most like um, yeah. If you're gonna write like a generic sequel conversation. For yeah. broad audiences, everyone in the world to hear and like not be in playing inside baseball. Yeah. That is the perfect way to do it. Like those are the movies to t- touch on. Like, yeah, like... Terminator 2, Aliens, uh, Godfather. Like those are the big sequels that everybody's seen those movies, right? Like those are the big, big movies. You don't yeah. get into like the inside baseball, like like small movies that less people have seen, you know? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. which one, which Friday the 13th movie is best? Like, oh, the sixth one, obviously. Or the seventh, like, like that's <laughs> not what you get into. You get into like, you get into like James Cameron's contributions and Star to Wars, film. yeah, and Star Wars, yeah. But like, yeah. I I always found that conversation to be exhausting as a kid because I disagreed with them so heavily. Like I was so angry. But but both sides are stated in the in this conversation, right? Like, yeah, but they dismiss Return of the Jedi, which was always my favorite Star Wars film. They just never bring it up. I know like, they dismiss it completely offhand. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then Aliens gets talked about as the superior, as like a great, better, maybe better than the first sequel. But the but then the person says like, well, no, I counted for taste. And then uh, yes. Randy says like, yeah, Ridley Scott rules or whatever. Yeah, hundred like percent. Randy actually like that movie, like that scene, one hundred percent made me love Randy more because even Randy's was like, no, Terminator One. Like, yeah. Sarah Connor. <laughs> yes. Like, mm-hmm. I still have that. I don't have the quote from the Terminator movie. I have the quote from Randy uh, from Randy from Scream 2 in my head of saying okay. that scene. Like, yeah. I watched Terminator because Randy wanted me to watch Terminator. So I watched it, and I like Terminator. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily – like, I think I love – I like Terminator 2, but I really like Terminator. Okay. Anyways, just frustrated me as a kid because I was like, Godfather 1 is, is better than Godfather 2. No, Okay. I don't know if that's true, but whatever. <laughs> that doesn't really matter. Does it not but, matter? Yeah. We're talking about well, superior sequels. 
I it's weird because like I honestly felt their rationale for why Empire doesn't fit fits better with Godfather Two of just like well that's part of like the saga or something like you almost can't differentiate them. Whereas like I don't know that you could say Star Wars was going to be a guaranteed success and Empire wouldn't have happened like empire is a sequel why isn't that a sequel <laughs> you know I, okay so the argument that i would make that they didn't make in the movie because inside baseball was too much yeah yeah, uh, yeah godfather was written after godfather one type of thing like the never... mario puzo's book and everything i or oh, that's a good question that's that's where i'm wondering like it's like well if this already was just sitting there ready to be adapted well, i know like... that godfather 3 was developed by mario and francis yeah so like that one's not... way later yeah. like that's it's but there's own... definitely not like saga stuff in mind uh, i know that like okay so the argument that i think that they could make would be empire strikes back was like intentionally a second in a trilogy because at that point we already knew oh. like star wars one is a standalone film because we don't know what it's going to do but empire right. strikes back is clearly a second in a trilogy so it gets to do a bunch of like confident stuff because it without knows ever having to chapter. do any of the heavy work it does zero heavy right, work than right. the movie and that's okay. like the biggest problem with um, what people like criticize Last Jedi and Attack of the Clones with. It's like it does no heavy work. It's just trying to fill Well, it didn't film. like plan itself together to do that and yeah. take advantage of that. It's just like yeah, a movie yeah. that fills itself with the idea that the biggest piece of information we have to get across is Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. And we have to right. get there type right. of thing. So, so it we... gets to like do tee-ups and setups and like – doesn't get you to know, do the it heavy... doesn't need to conclude. Yeah, yeah it doesn't yeah. have to do the heavy work that comes in Return of the Jedi or Revenge of the Sith and the and Rise of the Sky of Skywalker, where it just has to like do all the heavy work because it's like, what do we do? Like, I don't know what we do. What do we do? <laughs> I painted you in the corner. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. We're so, yeah. okay. I guess like talking about this movie then as a sequel, like I kind of love the rushed production for it because it kind of just forces their hand to just like. We just got to go like we just got to like not overthink it. We just got to make this Yeah. like it kind of just has like a same pure energy from like the first movie, yes. you know, like, like it doesn't know this lose is be a hit type of thing. Yeah, it doesn't lose edge or something like it yeah. just kind of stays in the same zone and gets to continue like it doesn't have to overthink itself. Like that's where I would say like Scream 3 overthinks itself and like tries oh, to be yeah. too clever and too yes. meta and too ironic and well, like but then, okay. it keeps piling layers on itself, you know, yeah. and it kind of suffocates. Oh, see, I'd make the exact opposite argument. I think I think 4 becomes too meta, too over too complicated, but I, that's what I love about it But I kind of like, like the No, no, live that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what I love and, about yeah. it because Kevin's like what can you do next other than make it a nightmare of a meta film like, like a it's nightmare sort of folding of a in all crazy yeah. and yeah, yeah my argument with what's wrong with three is it's too obsessed with making it an emotional film like because there's oh, the whole okay. search of sydney's mom there's sydney's brother being the main killer like it's there is too much it's not it's lost all the fun of the meta narrative and it's okay. becoming meta in a cartoony way because now we're hanging out on a film set and James that's what and i mean Bob like, are there like but we're it's not in like Ho yeah that's the stuff i remember is like we're in hollywood jane Silent bob is there carrie fisher's there kind of talking about script doctoring and like well no and she's like yeah i look like hollywood carrie fisher jokes. and if i slept yeah. with george lucas too i would have gotten the job as her line type of thing she yeah has. yeah like there's like winky winky stuff about hollywood and stuff all over but that's it. what i'm saying like, like that's not well, that's not kevin williamson level like he's making his story his all of his story meta because he's mm -hmm. like in like he's never once doing a wick in the camera that the black people the ones die at the beginning of the movie 
He's just yeah. like, and then has a black person say, I'm getting out of here because why would I be here? I'm going to die. Like, and then he does and he survives the movie. Which yeah. Like, but, like he's yeah. doing those things. That he's making it part of the story. It's like Aaron Kruger wrote a story of screen and then inserted meta jokes. Mm-hmm. That's all he did. Like it was just inserted. Whereas again, when you return to four, Kevin Williamson, once again, makes the whole story meta because now it's like a remake version of meta. Like he's doing remakes concepts, reboot concepts. So yeah, I, I don't know. Okay. I get, I'm, I, I I get what you're saying. Totally. I just don't think it's the meta problem because meta is a big part of what we love about is the, these films. Uh, okay. I think it's, it's been like, years since I looked at Scream Three. I just remember not liking it. Oh, absolutely. So, I think the yeah. problem with Scream Three is it's it's not meta in the right way. It's meta in like let's make it set in Hollywood so we can make jokes. Where, mm-hmm. And it's like that's well, not what Scream was about. Like they're not they're doing meta to make a like to almost like it's actually pretty impressive to like make a horror film film where like and Roger points this out to make a horror film where all the characters have seen horror films. So therefore mm-hmm. you have to keep things fresh. And if you can't keep things fresh, you point at it and you say meta things about it. Like, like Sidney Brescott in the first movie saying like, Oh, I hate horror movies because the girl runs up the stairs instead of going out the front door. And then moments later, she runs up the stairs because the front door is locked. Like Kevin Williamson gets to, cause he can't write his way out of this like cliche. He just puts right. his finger at it and then makes you think how funny or clever it is that he did that. Right. But he still does the cliche. Like he gets there before you do to yeah. call it out kind of thing. Yeah. Know? And then Which... he gets, the, but then he still gets to do the cliche. He's not writing anything really original. He's just telling you that it's a cliche and then doing it subsequently. Mm-hmm. And then you're amazed by the fact that, whoa, he just told me that this shouldn't happen and that he did it. That's awesome. Yeah. So. And like in this conversation, they talk about how like the sequels are gorier and crazier. And then it's like, I guess it is like it's, it's following its own pattern. That yeah, it's, it's I think they're just saying like itself. sequels go bigger. And that's actually like in all the sequels we just talked about, like Godfather Part 2 is a bigger film. Mm-hmm. Like so like much they go bigger. to Cuba and all this. Well, like, and it's just like they go back to the past and we get like a whole dual narrative throughout the whole film. Type yeah. Of thing, right. Uh, Empire had way bigger. bigger cast and way more action scenes and way more ambitious action scenes. Terminator yeah. to Terminator 2. Like those are not in the same universe. Like those movies don't exist. Well, in the yeah, same just universe. scope of budget and production and everything. That's something I actually felt like was a little weird with this movie because like it sort of felt like a rush production in terms of just how much we're just on the Windsor college campus is like most of the scenes. Yes. <laughs> like, especially in the center. Like I like that there was a lot of like bright, sunny scenes and everybody's just kind of hanging out and talking, <laughs> but it's like, wow, so many of these shot setups are just this one area. <laughs> Yeah. Like uh, other than like the film school, the movie theater and like uh, the car scene, we don't really like leave the college no. for most of this story. Like it, but, it almost but I don't remember like the sense of scope and scale of the first movie. I just no, no, remember no. there's like that's house the thing, parties like, and stuff. The first movie but... is Sid's house, the high school and then um, Matthew Lillard's house, uh, Stu's house. That's okay. Stu, so there's we're like two Stu's house, house parties. Yeah. Well, we're at Stu's we're at Stu's house within an at the hour mark. Okay. And then the last hour is all Stu's house. Okay. So it's kind of small scale too. Like this, Yeah, like it's this, regional. Okay. For sure. Like they did get 10 million more dollars to make this movie. It's just like other I, than like two sequences, they don't really seem like that out of control like I bigger. think that money went to people though. Yeah, just getting a better cast or like a the returning cast. cast, like saying, hey, you guys coming back, everyone gets bumps and raises because 
yeah. like, to get Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson back again, like, in such a short period of time. Right. Because, like, Kevin Williamson had a deal with the Weinsteins to make... So Three he made movies? this one movie called Music of the Heart. Oh. With Meryl Streep. Wes Street. Craven did? Yeah. 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 And so his deal was that he would make... I can't remember which one. If it's Scream 2 or Scream 3, I'm pretty sure it's Scream... Th- I think it was both of them, that the Weinsteins would let him make this movie, this prestige film with Meryl Streep, if he made if. these films for him. And okay. he did. And... I think like Scream Two worked out, but Scream Three and Music of the Heart were not worth it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I mean, okay, Scream Three is worth it if we got Scream Four and we got Scream Four, so I'm happy because okay. we wouldn't get Scream Four without Scream Three. That makes sense, right? They wouldn't need to reconsider things and revamp it if yeah, it didn't go awry. If that makes sense, yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. Anyways, yeah. So. There's definitely that sense of budget, and I agree. Like, I kind of like the rush sense of it because it lets him make, like you said, like quicker choices. He doesn't have to think through too many things. Like he, and to be fair, it's all there's so much um, out there that he can pull from when it comes to cliches and things like that. That mm-hmm. he can he can craft a script pretty easily. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. Like, for me, the comparison it has a seat the first... of the pants quality. I guess is yes. what I'm saying. Yeah. The comparison quality between the first two is I do love the first one and I won't I won't ever say two is better than the first one because it's the first. But like there are scenes in the second one that I think like are just as good as any scene in the first one. Specifically the car scene. Like her okay. getting out of the car is like that they like, they milk that scene a lot, but it's it's fun. Yeah. Like it's just there's some good tension there. That's but, what I mean. Like I saw it as a yeah. kid and like Randy sets up early in the film, like like a lot more deaths and stuff like that, right? Like, and anyone could die. Mm-hmm. Oof. Anyways, and so I just got us scared for Sydney. Like, I was like, man, this is the type of movie that would kill its main character. Sure. I guess just to, like, she has to crawl over, like, passed out ghost face out of this car window. Yes. And and then her friend also does. Yes. <laughs> so they just kind of, like, milk the same tension twice. And then she's debating whether to pull the mask off his face and, like, doesn't. And that sets up like the actual gotcha moment or whatever. Yes. Yeah. He, uh, they, they escape. I just remember yeah. seeing it in theaters and like the scene really worked well on a big screen. I felt tense the entire time that this was happening. Type mm-hmm. of, not necessarily for Sid, but like her friend subsequently like was like, oh, this is the person who actually could die type of thing. Yeah. So anyways. I briefly want to touch on some 1997 stuff. Uh, just like I. OJ Simpson has always just been kind of like that thing that happened back in the nineties for me. But like, even when I was, I wasn't aware of it when I was like 10, but that would have been like pretty recent news when this movie, uh, puts him in the same category as like Bundy and stuff in one line of dialogue. Yes. It's like, wow, that's kind of a spicy take, I guess. Cause that isn't technically what the courts just ruled, but okay. But like, you know. yeah, it was February 1997, right? Like, yeah, like that's a that's a hot take in this uh, December 97 movie. Oh no, sorry, it was it was 95, and then there was uh, a. But the trial like went on for yeah. a while. But yeah, yeah, um, just just you know that little nugget from that time frame. Uh, and then I love this cell phone scene so much because it like. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Randy, Gale, and Dewey are hanging out at the college, yes. and they get a scary phone call from from Ghostface, mm-hmm. and they all start to start looking around, and 
it's like early enough in telecommunications where they feel, well, they can see us and who has a cell phone. So it has to be like one of these eight people that is terrorizing us right now. Let's run 100%. around the park and like smack people. And yeah. Like, well, cause they set up that like them. they can see where they are and yeah. therefore they must be close type of thing. And therefore they yeah. must have cell phones to be fair. Like, yeah, that's, Back like in our day, anybody could be. Well, it gets a more terrifying concept now because even like Bluetooth headsets can make it almost impossible for you to see. Impossible to has tell it. that anyone yeah. is talking to you. Yeah, but like in and those like days, everyone it's, has a, it's cell phone. a clever idea. Like, and the fact that they're incorporating cell phones into a movie so early on, which is like still to this day, horror movies have a tough time with cell phones. Because yeah, they're like it does solve so many problems. So they automatically this, make the person lose their cell phone because, oh, man, ghosts know how to turn off cellular signals. Oh, yeah. Like some sort of EMP pulse or something from yeah. the ghost would prevent it from working or something. Yeah. We need to write a reason uh, or just, you know, let's not bother with it. Uh, the Conjuring, let's just go back to the 70s when it was. Yeah, to like to be fair, that's also a big piece. It's like we <laughs> yeah. just have to go to the past because guess what? We can't. This is too hard. And to be fair, yeah. it still works. Like, I, I don't know. The Conjuring movies are... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, but I'm just saying, yes. like, it's, it's like, almost an escape from this problem. Oh, 100%. Uh, the Sarah Michelle Gellar scene has a way around it in that I think she's using a cordless, so she's too far away from the base of the phone yes. <laughs> at the front door. So it's like, man, those Like, she leaves things. the house. So Sarah yeah. Michelle Gellar gets a phone call from Ghostface. This guy's creeping her out. Obviously, she doesn't know Ghostface is the killer, but... And it was creeping around. She she runs out of her sorority and she tries to call campus security, but she is too far away from her uh, base of the phone, so it gets all staticky. And she yeah. has to go back into the house to then go crackle, crackle. And then this whole time, it turns out one of her uh, sisters in their sorority was just upstairs the whole time, so she thinks she's safe. Right. Because... But in in that moment, they accidentally let Ghostface into the house. Yes. And yeah. It's it was actually one of my favorite scenes yeah. <laughs> was like that was one of the more like elaborate orchestrated like gotcha moments or whatever mm-hmm. in the movie. And it sort of echoes the first movie scene again and the stab movie scene again. Yeah. And I like I love that kind of like we'll just reiterate it and like repurpose the same basic idea, but we'll sharpen it up for you a bit. And for it's sure. like, okay, that's fun. I think she's um, watching Buffy on the TV in that. Scene. I, and Nosferatu is definitely on screen at like the end of that scene. But okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, so a fun little theory that often mm-hmm. gets talked about. Uh, Matthew Lillard is in this film. What? Matthew Lillard, who played Stu the second second killer in the first film yeah is in this movie just secretly as one of the so you you know the the frat party scene yeah he's in the background okay dressed up as like as his like uh kiss the uh no what's the one she's all that character he was filming she's all that during the same time in oh, the same area okay. because there's a wine scene another wine scene film and yeah. He visited the set, was in the background extra in that scene. And there's a scene where he, like, in the background, buddies up next to Timothy Oliphant's character. Oh, fun. Okay. So there's been a theory because at one point the script had three killers for this movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. Before and the, the and, and different iterations, and it was always Mrs. Loomis was the main one. And then yeah. different iterations had, like, Haley, her best friend, and Derek being a killer before they decided on... Uh, Timothy Oliphant's character. 
Yeah. But then there was always going to be this potentially there was a shot they they filmed just as a setup of uh, at the end of the movie everything settled up there you know they do the wide aerial shot with the helicopter moving up type of thing. Yeah. There yeah, was going to be a the dude campus. in a ghost face costume in the bell tower looking at the group hinting oh. at a setup for a third film that the one of the three villains survived. And okay. the theory has been that like Stu would have been that that villain and then just survived or had a brother survived the first movie <laughs> okay and then like yeah seeking revenge and like that's why he's in the background for the first, second movie and all right, like, they all had right. ways of setting it up type of thing but then obviously they scrapped it for roman her brother right right which i mean part of that could have been the like screenplay throwaway thing with the leaks and whatever but yes. or maybe just yeah well, roman yeah i mean they obviously make this up as they go along um there's still this theory out there there's like a new screen movie that they're making they're yeah. ready or not guys um from a couple years ago ready or not are making it for them and it's largely being touted as like a remake slash reboot where it's like they're going to introduce a young cast that they're going to go forward with. I was and seeing then, a lot of like the current cast still listed on it. Though. Yes, but then like, they're going to give closure to the old cast type of thing. Okay. okay. And so there's been a lot of rumors that like Matthew Lillard might like this is when Stu might come back. This theory of Stu might come back type of thing. Okay. Because everyone I talks do about like, like him in that first movie. Yeah. Yes, he's kind of great in that first movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, my mom and dad are going to be so mad. <laughs> anyways it's so great i love i can have that that like line is memorized in my brain um mm-hmm. yeah anyway so th- there's a theory about that coming out i don't think it's true i think the only way to end off sydney's story is either to kill her unfortunately <laughs> yeah or make her the villain and kill make her the killer okay so she Which, can't just i think retire scream, <laughs> no like i don't because i think scream four the end of scream four she kills her own niece right and, like, yeah. the last family member she had, her niece's mom, her aunt, died, like, got killed type of yeah. thing, right? So, like, what is Sid left? And there's even this shot where, like, she's lying on the ground with uh, Emma Roberts. And Emma Roberts is just, I just wanted to be famous like you. And she's like, hey, there's a price to fame. But she's, like, so cold. Like, doesn't care mm-hmm. at all that she just killed her niece. And there's always been a long theory in my brain about, like, there was a, a while where Kevin Williamson, like, if four is good, we have an ideas for five and six. And my mm-hmm. idea was that, like, Sid would be the secret villain of Five and then set up a six movie where she gets taken down or something else. Or, I don't know. I guess, yeah. Which is tragic, I guess. Can't Super just tragic. Be, yes. yeah. But it would be, it would bring you back to, like, that really twisty ending where it would be out of nowhere. You'd feel like, oh, man. Mm-hmm. Like, so, anyways. Yeah. But... I don't know, like generally positive feelings about it. It rides much the same wave as the first movie. Like it can't surprise you in the same ways, but I still enjoy the ride. Yeah, uh, I, I make the argument like always that it's not meant to surprise you the same ways. Like they're not trying to recapture fire. Like the reveals yeah. are there, but it's like the M. Night problem. Like everybody thought that M. Night was only about reveal films after Sixth Sense. And then you kind of forgot mm. the point. Like, yeah, there's reveals in the village, but that's not what it's about. It's not about those things. Mm-hmm. And so people but get caught up what, on this But that's thing. the expectation. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think Scream is about the reveals because if they were, I think they might try to be that make them better. I think it's about like the ludicrousy of the reveals. Like these are, these are silly motives for people to become serial killers. Right. And they're definitely laughing it up in the final act with the like, yeah, like Timothy, oh, Timothy Oliphant talking about. Motive of, like I'm going to put 
violence in the media on trial. And to be fair, that was a hot button issue in the mid nineties. Like, like yeah. again, another thing where Kevin Williamson had his finger on the pulse because like uh, natural born killers came out in 94. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like the hot button media. Cause there was a bunch of copycat killers and even scream had their own like copycat uh, murders type of thing. And so mm-hmm. Kevin Williamson was like, this is not a good idea. Like movies, he has an opinion that movies don't inspire real violence. So, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. he put a main character habit, and then, then to have Mrs. Loomis's real motive being like, "You killed my son," ah! and you're like, "Oh, okay." Straight this up is, revenge, yeah. and then just has pistols. Yeah, and then that like that has to be like basically a Pulp Fiction moment where they both just shoot him yes. a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> Like they the, and they called him the Tarantino film student like earlier in the movie. Yep. And then they just both have pistols and blast and him. And shoot him like exactly the same shot of Vincent and uh, like it's almost yeah. the exact same angle too of Vincent yeah. and Julius's like shot type of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And no, then Sydney gets one step colder and just shoots. shoots. <laughs> but it, shoots here's the thing. Laurie Metcalf like has a bit of a sigh at that point. Yeah. So, so it's, it's like, highly right. implied that she does like she's dead then. Yeah. So, which you, you know, that's how you got to do it. It's a horror movie. They yeah. could come back. You got to well, well, be smart. Cause, yeah, Billy Loomis did come back in a really great jump Yeah. Scare. <laughs> really great jump scare. Okay, question for you. Uh, yeah. So this one is my superior sequel. Not in the sense that it's superior to the first, but it's the best of the sequels to me. For sure, yeah. Which one? I would say that. You would say that too? Okay. Because I yeah. know when going up into this, you were talking a bit about like four. You have really big fondness for four, as I as do I. I do like four, uh, even just, I kind of revisited my IMDb pages after, after watching it. And like, I have both one and two at eights and four at a seven. And I didn't change that. Okay. So yeah. So you have one and two nearly, nearly the same. Like essentially the same wave, (laughs) you know? Yeah. What'd you like? uh, uh, I think it's a five. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good number. That's a good number. Yeah. Yeah. A nice shrug, like, eh, yeah. there's things in it, but there are things that you're right. There, there are definitely things I like, but there's things that I'm like, I can't. When I tried to watch these through again in the fall, winter, like uh, October time, I was just yeah. three. I was just like on my phone more than I was watching it. Yeah. And I was, you know, like sitting down to watch it last night, it's like, wow, this is like a full two hour movie, but it like paces itself out. Yes. Like it's not over, there's not too much in there. Like, Which I is kind of shocking was... for, again, for like horror films being two hours is like, that's a length. Like that's a time. That's a movie. Yeah. yeah. But pacing wise, I didn't feel like there was super dead spots or anything. Yep. It kind of keeps it going. Yeah. Uh, just with all the fun characters that you want to see, yeah. <laughs> really. Like Dewey, so. again, Dewey and Gale really like up there. It's very Chemi- clear. Like, so the first movie, dynamic. they had good chemistry, but then they met yeah. on the first movie. So by the second movie, they were fully, like, dating. Like, yeah. And, like, Off you can screen. tell that, like, whatever was happening in their real lives was 100% on screen. Because they were There's both... some fun, like, just dumb smiles and things oh. that are just, yeah. You can tell, like, there's, like, hard to, like, fake great chemistry. And there's just, like, very, very clear, like, sexual, palpable, like, they think each other are, like, the cutest people in the entire world in real life. And they just let that seed into their characters. Because yeah, there's just fun. some shots where they're just like, oh, man, this is good chemistry right now. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate because by the fourth film, it's like they were divorced and messily divorced. And you're like... Oh, they don't even they don't even share scenes with each other in that movie. Uh, uh yeah. Anyways, okay. But all right. Yeah. So um, this is the second oh, movie. Oh, I 
I just want to acknowledge one thing, actually, that I I think I screwed up on our Freddy discussion. Okay. Like, I honestly thought Kevin Williamson had a hand in the new Nightmare screenplay. I don't... Like... You said this in the notes. I don't recall you saying Kevin Williamson was involved with the new Nightmare. Okay. Like, I might not have have stated it, but in my mind, that was, like, the scenario. Sure. But it's like, oh, no, that was, like, a Wes Craven original idea. He wrote that movie. I would have yeah. like I would have corrected you because I know Wes Craven. This is the first big movie he sold because he had written. I know what you did last summer years before. Oh, Williamson, yeah, yeah. like Scream is his first screenplay. Yes, yeah. yeah, and like that was like a big breakout for him with the idea that like once Scream was huge, Sony went and bought an old screenplay of his and made I know what you did last summer. Yeah, because they're like everyone yeah. was on the Williamson train. Um, right. If he if he had was was involved with New Nightmare, he probably would have gotten those movies made faster. Type of thing. Sure. So I I guess I just felt like I kind of accidentally stole some like props from Wes Craven gotcha. uh, in my mind anyway. Of like, yeah. Well, I he came it. up with a cool idea that then got iterated on into this meta situation. Sure. With the Scream movies, is was my basic point of that. Uh, but the, the I I kind is- of. There's misappropriated. nothing fun about New Nightmare. New Nightmare is so serious about itself, though. Right. Like, I, I do like the idea of, like, oh, those movies we've been making, like, created this demon 100%. or something. Like, yes. there's some cool, like, no, no, getting into this zone. There's great ideas in there, but they yeah. don't have fun with the actor stuff. They don't yeah. really have fun with it at all. Like, it's all super serious, heavy-handed. And then it still resolves to, it's Freddy Krueger in a boiler room. Stuff. I know, <laughs> which we like, got into in in our discussion there. Just yeah, like, guys, but... I've seen this. Make it a new like, especially because you made it a new Freddy. Like he does, he's wearing like a trench coat. He doesn't have a hat, and he's got these weird super gloves. Anyways. Right. Just those were more like uh, linked in my brain than they actually are. I mean, there's the sure. obvious Wes Craven connection. Oh yes. But uh, but then yeah, the scream stuff takes it all into this new kind of comedy, ironic, like self aware area that really helps it. So yes. Yeah, anyway, sure. yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that um but okay uh i guess if we want to move into the mvps of the of scream yeah, oh, 2 for sure yeah yeah uh you did the summary so it's my yeah. turn right yeah uh right off the bat like oh this is this was a hard one for me this time um because i so deeply appreciate everything kevin williamson did for this movie and like i talked on a great length in this episode like how much i appreciate the levels of irony how much he's like having fun with writing a sequel to his own stuff. And he's like poking fun of his own first movie while at the same time having fun with this own sequel. He's actually created in this real world scenario and Mm -hmm. still also creating it kind of to be like ridiculous, but not like outlandishly ridiculous, you know? Okay. Um, Yeah. So I love that, but he is not my MVP because I couldn't take it away from Kevin. I mean, sorry, from David Arquette. David Arquette will forever be my D, my VIP for MVP for like this movie forever going forward. Like he is my favorite part of this movie. When he shows up with those music cues, I'm happy. I have a big grin on my face. He is like strutting around with that one arm. His conversation, we didn't talk about it, but his like uh, yogurt, frozen yogurt shop conversation with Randy where like the oh. angles on their faces as he's eating this ice cream. It's and like, getting well, ice I mean, cream you're his, a suspect. Yeah. yeah. But, like he's getting ice cream in his mustache and he's so like, they're so dorky talking to yeah. each other it's so perfect like i love that scene so much anyways mm-hmm. 
Uh, I also love those scenes because Randy giving you the rules for the movies is important and something I want to see. But okay. um, it's just the fact that Dewey gets to do it with Randy and Dewey just is great. So, no, yeah. No, my joy is centered around Dewey for these films. Okay. Uh, I, I, I've been trying to, like, incorporate, like, uh, the runner-ups into the stuff I – the notes better, but I totally failed this week. So, I'm just <laughs> going to – I'm going to do two runner-ups before I get to the, the one. Uh First off was I loved the one scene we get of Luke Wilson. I thought was really funny as like fake <laughs> Billy. Oh, I'm so dumb. Like he just has like he overplays it. His hair is too much. Like it's just a really funny moment. Uh, yeah. But he's barely in this movie. So you can't do that. Okay. Yeah. But I, I got a big laugh out of him. Uh, and then I I actually really like the weird, crazy energy Laurie Metcalf brings at the end of this movie. Yes. <laughs> like the wild eyed zany. Like oh, there's this shot of her where she's like so wild-eyed, like running at her with a knife type of thing, and just yeah, yeah, like perfect little accent at the end of the movie, and then her being kind of throughout the movie this time and paying more attention to her, uh, it was it was she she was bringing some game, yeah, uh, but the for, like for some reason this is the first time I really like thought about this dude and like really how important he is to all of this. It's just Roger L. Jackson, the voice of Ghostface, oh, yeah, face, yeah, yeah Ghost is face. just like. Oh, he's different people in all of these movies, but if it wasn't that exact timber and sound on the phone, it just wouldn't be Scream at all. Well, because it's a voice you know? changer, right? Like, that's what they establish yeah. is that it's voice changers. They so the casually, like, Mission Impossible rules with, like, faces or something, just be like, I'm Timothy Oliphant, and now I'm not. Like, yeah. he just kind of holds up, like, the thing, and it's like, oh, of course, he has the Roger L. Jackson simulator. Yeah. That he just holds in front of his face, and now anyone can be that guy. Like, even the prank call guy has to have that thing. Yeah. To, like, But, it, like, that that's off. what they're establishing, that it is a popular item enough that it become a popular voice. To the yeah. point when I was a kid being like, whoa, is this available? Because I would love to have his like, voice. Like, can you just sound like that dude? Yeah, I know. Because that guy's exact way he does all of it is so key to, like, all of this stuff. Oh, 100%. So, and even the yeah. point when in the stab scenes where he's doing it so poorly. Like, yeah. in the first movie, he's so clever in, like, how he says stuff and asks questions. But in, like, the really stab sinister movie, phrasing. Just, yeah. yeah, his rephrasing of just, like, I'm going to stab you. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's not clever, though. The first movie <laughs> had cover not. lines. Um, yeah. So crazy stuff behind the scenes, like he never yeah. was on set. Okay, he, he intentionally just does this on his own. He voice never met studio? the actors. They didn't meet at all for the first two films. Okay, he like Wes Craven didn't want to meet them to meet him because they, he's such a nice guy. They wanted to like hear this dude on the phone and be terrified of this voice. That if they met okay. the real actor, they might have like just be totally disarmed by the guy who's mojo jojo yeah <laughs> exactly like it'd just be like oh this is <laughs> yeah. this isn't a scary dude at all so like Wes Craven's yeah. idea was like they kept him he sequestered him on set okay that made awesome. them have live conversations on set with this actor so they had real performances okay like cool yeah. yeah but i just feel like he is quietly like in super important to the whole scream oh, franchise yeah. and i never thought about it it's an iconic voice time. man like when you hear that voice you just know it's scream yeah. Like, like, and it's, like, not quite the movie trailer voice guy. Like, this summer. Like, that guy. But it's, like, yeah. a little bit. Uh-huh. And just, it's a new killer every movie. But, like, we're still just calling him Ghostface because oh, he's, like, man. tied into this persona. Wait to, the, wait to the third movie when he has, like, multiple settings so he can make his voice sound like the other people in the movie. 
Okay. So he makes phone calls as Sidney Prescott, and then he makes phone calls as somebody else, and like they really changes play his around voice, around voice changing. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. Great. So that's great. That's actually a really good MVP. Good job. I'm really happy with that. Can I take the well, question just, this week? Oh, okay. If you want to, yeah. My mine actually we almost accidentally answered, so I'll uh I won't worry about it. Okay. It was it was about violence in the media, and you brought up natural born killers and everything. So <laughs> never okay. mind. It's yeah. really depressing. I don't want to talk about that because when you do look into it, it's like, oh, really horrific things happened. Yeah, uh, right around these things happening, and it's like, oh man, the correlation. Well, it might was just actually about like, like yeah, how that was this weird conversation in the '90s around yeah. like video games and stuff too. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay, so my, mine's actually a lot more lighthearted then, so that's great. All right, great. <laughs> uh, have you seen Kevin Williamson and uh, Wes Craven's other collaboration? Starring uh, Joshua Jackson? No, I don't think so. Do you, do you remember the 2004 movie Cursed? Oh, I brought up Cursed yesterday uh, when I was talking to Brittany about Kevin Williamson. But no, I, I actually haven't seen Cursed. You haven't seen Cursed? I have not, no. What a mess of a movie, man. What a complete <laughs> mess of a movie. And like young okay. Jesse Eisenberg, Christy, Christy, Christ, uh, oh my goodness. Why am I having trouble? What's her name? Richie. Richie? Christina yeah, Christi- Richie. What's her first name? Christina. Christina Ricci. Oh my gosh. I kept saying like yeah. Christiana or something like that. I was like, what is that's Wednesday not it? It's Adams. Christina. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. yeah, Christina Ricci. It's another one of those movies where they kept the secret a secret like the ending a secret and it got spoiled, so they had to reshoot and it ruined oh. the movie. Like the new sequel ending was terrible. The movie is a hot mess. It is like <laughs> just trying to be meta but with like werewolves in hollywood and I've all the like characters a are clip actors of jesse eisenberg like researching werewolves online and it's yeah. really funny and dated and broken but, but it's like scott bayo yeah. is in this movie as scott bayo okay so it tries to get clever about itself and it sounds worth a look maybe it's worth a look but... for sure it's just like one of those like i remember it coming out and being like oh man like this is the scream guys and then going to see him like this is Oof. Uh, but that sounds like again like them kind of like curling their vision because it got spoiled oh like, yeah if they just stuck you not, to their guns have you not you read know? this stuff like no no it's not even their guns the weinsteins did this without their permission but they're like oh it's been ruined we got to change it no like, no no like okay for all three of the films that kevin williamson was involved in with the screen films his yeah. screenplay got rewritten without his permission oh man it's why okay. he didn't come back for a third he wrote a scream three screenplay i've read like a uh breakdown of it and it actually would have been a pretty fun movie mm-hmm. and then they just scrapped it because they wanted to do something more fun like a lighter nah. and then they went with aaron Kruger because he came on for rewrites on the first and second and then yeah, okay. kevin williamson after all those years of being like i'm done with scream i'm not coming back the wine scenes went back to him like hey we want a sequel we promise not to interfere on scream four and then they did <laughs> Wes Craven okay. came back to Scream 4, wrote us a contract saying, I'm going to do this movie because he loved Kevin Williamson's script so much. And then before shooting happened, Kevin Williamson's script got rewritten, like behind the scenes. <sighs> Man, those meddlesome dudes. Just, just screwing everything Ruining up. Hollywood before we... Like ruining real lives and then also movies, yes. <laughs> which is less important. Significantly, but that's yes. What we're but just another version, another, another feather in their hat of the bad guys. Anyways, yeah, yeah like he's... Uh, he was done. Like he was didn't want anything to do with it because it's such a negative experience for him. Man. Okay. So, anyways. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Weinstein's, right? Anyways. 
So, so cursed, uh, check it out. <laughs> cursed, check it out. Another one, yeah. great Weinstein film. Um, mm-hmm. Great. That's great. What's next week, Nathan? Um. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> That's all for this week's episode. Uh, thanks for listening. If you want to send us some questions, um, you can tweet us at OKVideo Podcast or email Ryan at OKVideo.ca or Nathan at OKVideo.ca. Uh, next week, we're looking at the uh, film adaptation of Walter Wager's 58 Minutes. Uh, it's also known as Die Hard 2. Uh, and thanks to its marketing team, it is best known as Die Hard 2, Die Harder, uh, which is actually just a tagline, kind but of it is, live, die, repeat style. You yes, know? but it, like, it's actually like on my side of my thing. It's like it goes Die Hard and Die Hard 2, Die Harder, and then Die Hard with a Vengeance. Like, it, it is its proper title. And and because we're in Canada, it also says like fifty eight minutes. minutes. <laughs> yes, because in France they were like, oh, people love that book over there. So. Yeah, they did yeah, love that book, great. and they got frustrated in... that it got adapted into a Die Hard film. Yeah, but anyway, so yes, Bruce Willis, uh, he's at an airport. It's Christmas time. Uh, but until then, I'm Nathan, and I'm Ryan. Bye bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.